Section 13 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 5, Part 1 On Thought in Medicine. An address delivered August 2, 1877 on the anniversary of the foundation of the institute for the education of army surgeons it is now thirty-five years since on the second of august i stood on the rostrum in the hall of this institute before another such audience as this and read a paper on the operation of venal tumors i was then a pupil of this institution and was just at the end of my studies i had never seen a tumor cut and the subject matter of my lecture was merely compiled from books but book knowledge played at that time a far wider and far more influential part in medicine than we are at present disposed to assign to it it was at a period of fermentation of the fight between learned tradition and the new spirit of natural science which would have no more of tradition but wished to depend upon individual experience the authorities at that time judged more favorably of my essay than i did myself and i still possess the books which were awarded to me as the prize the recollections which crowd in upon me on this occasion have brought vividly before my mind a picture of the then condition of our science of our endeavors and of our hopes and have led me to compare the past state of things with that into which it has developed much indeed has been accomplished although all that we hoped for has not been fulfilled and many things have turned out differently from what we wished, yet we have gained much for which we could not have dared to hope. Just as a history of the world has made one of its few giant steps before our eyes, so also has our science. Hence an old student, like myself, scarcely recognizes the somewhat matronly aspect of Dame Medicine when he accidentally comes again in relation to her, so vigorous and so capable of growth has she become in the fountain of youth of the natural sciences i may perhaps retain the impression of this antagonism more freshly than those of my contemporaries whom i have the honor to see assembled before me and who having remained permanently connected with science and practice have been less struck and less surprised by great changes taking place as they do by slow steps this must be my excuse for speaking to you about the metamorphosis which has taken place in medicine during this period and with the results of whose development you are better acquainted than i am i should like the impression of this development and its causes not to be quite lost on the younger of my hearers they have no special incentive for consulting the literature of that period they would meet with principles which would appear as if written in a lost tongue so that it is by no means easy for us to transfer ourselves into the mode of thought of a period which is so far behind us the course of development of medicine is an instructive lesson on the true principles of scientific inquiry and the positive part of this lesson has perhaps in no previous time been so impressively taught as in the last generation the task falls to me of teaching that branch of the natural sciences which has to make the widest generalizations and has to discuss the meaning of fundamental ideas and which has on that account been not unfitly termed natural philosophy by the english-speaking peoples 
hence it does not fall too far out of the range of my official duties and of my own studies if i attempt to discourse here of the principles of scientific method in reference to the sciences of experience as regards my acquaintance with the tone of thought of the older medicine independently of the general obligation incumbent on every educated physician of understanding the literature of his science and the direction as well as the conditions of its progress there was in my case a special incentive in my first professorship at Königsberg, from the year eighteen forty nine to eighteen fifty six i had to lecture each winter on general pathology that is on that part of the subject which contains the general theoretical conceptions of the nature of disease and of the principles of its treatment general pathology was regarded by our elders as the fairest blossom of medical science but in fact that which formed its essence possesses only historical interest for the disciples of modern natural science many of my predecessors have broken a lance for the scientific defence of this essence and more especially henle and lotz the latter whose starting point was also medicine had in his general pathology and therapeutics arranged it very thoroughly and methodically and with great critical acumen my own original inclination was toward physics external circumstances compelled me to commence the study of medicine which was made possible to me by the liberal arrangements of this institution it had however been the custom of a former time to combine the study of medicine with that of natural sciences and whatever in this was compulsory i must consider fortunate not merely that i entered medicine at a time in which any one who was even moderately at home in physical considerations found a fruitful virgin soil for cultivation but i also consider the study of medicine to have been that training which preached more impressively and more convincingly than any other could have done the everlasting principles of all scientific work principles which are so simple and yet are ever forgotten again so clear and yet always hidden by a deceptive veil perhaps only he can appreciate the immense importance and the fearful practical scope of the problems of medical theory who has watched the fading eye of approaching death and witnessed the distracted grief of affection and who has asked himself the solemn questions has all been done which could be done to ward off the dread event have all the resources and all the means which science has accumulated become exhausted provided that he remains undisturbed in his study the purely theoretical inquirer may smile with calm contempt when for a time vanity and conceit seek to swell themselves in science and stir up a commotion or he may consider ancient prejudices to be interesting and uh, pardonable as remains of poetic romance or of youthful enthusiasm to one who has to contend with the hostile forces of fact indifference and romance disappear that which he knows and can do is exposed to severe tests he can only use the hard and clear light of facts and must give up the notion of lulling himself into agreeable illusions i rejoice therefore that i can once more address an assembly consisting almost exclusively of medical men who have gone through the same school medicine was once the intellectual home in which i grew up and even the emigrant best understands and is best understood by his native land 
if i am called upon to designate in one word the fundamental error of that former time i should be inclined to say that it pursued a false ideal of science in a one-sided and erroneous reverence for the deductive method medicine it is true was not the only science which was involved in this error but in no other science have the consequences been so glaring or have so hindered progress as in medicine the history of this science claims therefore a special interest in the history of the development of the human mind none other is perhaps more fitted to show that a true criticism of the sources of cognition is also practically an exceedingly important object of true philosophy the proud word of hippocrates intros philosophos is utheos godlike is the physician who is a philosopher served as it were a banner of the old deductive medicine we may admit this if only we once agree what we understand as a philosopher for the ancients philosophy embraced all theoretical knowledge their philosophers pursued mathematics physics astronomy natural history in close connection with true philosophical or metaphysical considerations if therefore we are to understand the medical philosopher of hippocrates to be a man who has a perfected insight into the causal connection of natural processes we shall in fact be able to say with hippocrates such a one can give help like a god understood in this sense the aphorism describes in three words the ideal which our science has to strive after but who can allege that it will ever attain this ideal but those disciples of medicine who thought themselves divine even in their own lifetime and who wished to impose themselves upon others as such were not inclined to postpone their hopes for so long a period the requirements for the philosophos were considerably moderated every adherent of any cosmological system in which for well or ill facts must be made to correspond with reality felt himself to be a philosopher the philosophers of that time knew little more of the laws of nature than the unlearned layman but the stress of their endeavours was laid upon thinking upon the logical consequence and completeness of the system it is not difficult to understand how in periods of youthful development such a one-sided overestimate of thought could be arrived at the superiority of man over animals of the scholar over the barbarian depends upon thinking sensation feeling perception on the contrary he shares with his lower fellow-creatures and in acuteness of the senses many of these are even superior to him that man strives to develop his thinking faculty to the utmost is a problem on the solution of which the feeling of his own dignity as well of his own practical power depends and it is a natural error to have considered unimportant the dowry of mental capacities which nature had given to animals and to have believed that thought could be liberated from its natural basis observation and perception to begin its icarian flight of metaphysical speculation it is in fact no easy problem to ascertain completely the origins of our knowledge an enormous amount is transmitted by speech and writing this power which man possesses of gathering together the stores of knowledge of generations is the chief reason of his superiority over the animal who is restricted to an inherited blind instinct and to its individual experience but all transmitted knowledge is handed on already formed 
whence the reporter has derived it or how much criticism he has bestowed on it can seldom be made out especially if the tradition has been handed down through several generations we must admit it all upon good faith we cannot arrive at the source and when many generations have contented themselves with such knowledge have brought no criticism to bear upon it have indeed gradually added all kinds of small alterations which ultimately grew up to large ones after all this strange things are often reported and believed under the authority of primeval wisdom a curious case of this kind is the history of the circulation of the blood of which we shall still have to speak but another kind of tradition by speech which long remained undetected is even still more confusing for one who reflects upon the origin of knowledge speech cannot readily develop names for classes of objects or for classes of processes if we have not been accustomed very often to mention together the corresponding individuals things and separate cases and to assert what there is in common about them they must therefore possess many points in common or if we reflecting scientifically upon this select some of these characteristics and collate them to form a definition the common possession of these selected characteristics must necessitate that in the given cases a great number of other characteristics are to be regularly met with there must be a natural connection between the first and the last named characteristics if for instance we assign the name of mammals to those animals which when young are suckled by their mothers we can assert further in reference to them that they are all warm-blooded animals born alive that they have a spinal column but no quadrate bone breathe through lungs have separate divisions of the heart and so forth hence the fact that in the speech of an intelligent observing people a certain class of things are included in one name indicates that these things or cases fall under a common natural relationship by this alone a host of experiences are transmitted from preceding generations without this appearing to be the case the adult moreover when he begins to reflect upon the origin of his knowledge is in possession of a huge mass of everyday experiences which in great part reach back to the obscurity of his first childhood everything individual has long been forgotten but the similar traces which the daily repetition of similar cases has left in his memory have deeply engraved themselves and since only that which is in conformity with law is always repeated with regularity these deeply impressed remains of all previous conceptions are just the conceptions of what is conformable to law in the things and processes thus man when he begins to reflect finds that he possesses a wide range of acquirements of which he knows not whence they came which he has possessed as long as he can remember we need not refer even to the possibility of inheritance by procreation these conceptions which he has formed which his mother tongue has transmitted assert themselves as regulative powers even in the objective world of fact and as he does not know that he or his forefathers have developed these conceptions from the things themselves the world of facts seems to him like his conceptions to be governed by intellectual forces we recognize this psychological anthropomorphism from the ideas of plato to the imminent dialectic of the cosmical process of hegel and to the unconscious will of schopenhauer natural science which in former times was virtually identical with medicine followed the path of philosophy the deductive method seemed to be capable of doing everything socrates it is true had developed the inductive conception in the most instructive manner but the best which he accomplished remained virtually misunderstood 
I will not lead you through the motley confusion of pathological theories which, according to the varying inclination of their authors, sprouted up in consequence of this or the other increase of natural knowledge, and were mostly put forth by physicians, who obtained fame and renown as great observers and empirics, independently of their theories. Then came the less gifted pupils, who copied their master, exaggerated his theory, made it more one-sided and more logical, without regard to any discordance with nature. The more rigid the system, the fewer and the more thorough were the methods to which the healing art was restricted. The more the schools were driven into a corner by the increase in actual knowledge, the more did they depend upon the ancient authorities, and the more intolerant were they against innovation. The great reformer of anatomy, Vesalius, was cited before the theological faculty of Salamanca. Servetus was burned at Geneva, along with his book, in which he described the circulation of the lungs, and the Paris faculty prohibited the teaching of Harvey's doctrine of the circulation of the blood in its lecture-rooms. At the same time, the basis of the systems from which these schools started were mostly views on natural science, which it would have been quite right to utilize within a narrow circle. What was not right was the delusion that it was more scientific to refer all diseases to one kind of explanation than to several. What was called the solidar pathology wanted to deduce everything from the altered mechanism of the solid parts, especially from their altered tension, from the strictum and laxum, from tone and want of tone, and afterwards from strained or relaxed nerves and from obstructions in the vessels. Humoral pathology was only acquainted with alterations in mixture. The four cardinal fluids, representatives of the classical four elements, blood, phlegm, black and yellow gall, with others, the acrimonies or discrazies, which had to be expelled by sweating and purging, in the beginning of our modern epoch, the acids and alkalis, or the alchemistic spirits, and the occult qualities of the substances assimilated, all these were the elements of this chemistry. Along with these were found all kinds of physiological conceptions, some of which contained remarkable foreshadowings, such as the hemphuton thermon, the inherent vital force of Hippocrates, which is kept up by nutritive substances. This again boils in the stomach and is the source of all motion. Here the thread has begun to be spun, which subsequently led a physician to the law of the conservation of force. On the other hand, the pneuma, which is half spirit and half air, which can be driven from the lungs into the arteries and fills them, has produced much confusion. The fact that air is generally found in the arteries of dead bodies, which indeed only penetrates in the moment in which the vessels are cut, led the ancients to the belief that air is also present in the arteries during life. The veins only remained then in which blood could circulate. It was believed to be formed in the liver to move from there to the heart and through the veins to the organs. Any careful observation of the operation of bloodletting must have taught that, in the veins, it comes from the periphery and flows towards the heart. But this false theory had become so mixed up with the explanation of fever and of inflammation that it acquired the authority of a dogma which it was dangerous to attack. Yet the essential and fundamental error of this system was, and still continued to be, the false kind of logical conclusion to which it was supposed to lead, the conception that it must be possible to build a complete system which would embrace all forms of disease and their cure upon any one such simple explanation. 
complete knowledge of the causal connection of one class of phenomena gives finally a logical coherent system there is no prouder edifice in the most exact thought than modern astronomy deduced even to the minutest of its small disturbances from newton's law of gravitation but newton had been preceded by kepler who had by induction collated all the facts and the astronomers have never believed that newton's force excluded the simultaneous action of other forces they have been continually on the watch to see whether friction resisting media and swarms of meteors have not also some influence the older philosophers and physicians believed that they could deduce before they had settled their general principles by induction they forgot that a deduction can have no more certainty than the principle from which it is deduced and that each new induction must in the first place be a new test by experience of its own bases that a conclusion is deduced by the strictest logical method from an uncertain premise does not give it a hair's breadth of certainty or of value one characteristic of the schools which built up their system on such hypotheses which they assumed as dogmas is the intolerance of expression which i have already partially mentioned one who works upon a well-ascertained foundation may readily admit an error he loses by so doing nothing more than that in which he erred if however the starting-point has been placed upon a hypothesis which either appears guaranteed by authority or is only chosen because it agrees with that which it is wished to believe true any crack may then hopelessly destroy the whole fabric of conviction the convinced disciples must therefore claim for each individual part of such a fabric the same degree of infallibility for the anatomy of hippocrates just as much as for fever crises every opponent must only appear then as stupid or depraved and the dispute will thus according to old precedent be so much more the passionate and personal the more uncertain is the basis which is defended. End of section 13